Chapter Thirty Nine, Part Two, of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell, Section Eighty Nine, Chapter Thirty Nine, Laws Which Regulate the Geographical Distribution of Species, Continued, Part Two geographical distribution and diffusion of man i have reserved for the last some observations on the range and diffusion of the human species over the earth and the influence of man in spreading other animals and plants especially the terrestrial many naturalists have amused themselves in speculating on the probable birthplace of mankind the point from which if we assume the whole human race to have descended from a single pair the tide of immigration must originally have proceeded it has always been a favorite conjecture that this birthplace was situated within or near the tropics where perpetual summer reigns and where fruits herbs and roots are plentifully supplied throughout the year the climate of these regions it has been said is suited to a being born without any covering and who had not yet acquired the arts of building habitations or providing clothes progress of human population the hunter state it has been argued which montesquieu placed the first was probably only the second stage to which mankind arrived, since so many arts must have been invented to catch a salmon or a deer, that society could no longer have been in its infancy when they came into use. When regions where the spontaneous fruits of the earth abound became overpeopled, men would naturally diffuse themselves over the neighboring parts of the temperate zone but a considerable time would probably elapse before this event took place. And it is possible, as a writer before cited observes, that in the interval before the multiplication of their numbers and their increasing wants had compelled them to emigrate, some arts to take animals were invented, but far inferior to what we see practiced at this day among savages as their habitations gradually advanced into the temperate zone the new difficulties they had to encounter would call forth by degrees the spirit of invention and the probability of such inventions always rises with the number of people involved in the same necessity a distinguished modern writer who coincides for the most part in the views above mentioned has introduced one of the persons in his second dialogue as objecting to the theory of the human race having gradually advanced from a savage to a civilized state on the ground that the first man must have inevitably been destroyed by the elements or devoured by savage beasts so infinitely his superiors in physical force he then contends against the difficulty here started by various arguments all of which perhaps superfluous for if a philosopher is pleased to indulge in conjectures on this subject 
why should he not assign as the original seat of man some of those large islands within the tropics which are as free from large beasts of prey as van diemen's land or australia here man may have remained for a period peculiar to a single island just as some of the large anthropomorphous species are now limited to one island within the tropics in such a situation the newborn race might have lived in security though far more helpless than the new holland savages and might have found abundance of vegetable food colonies may afterwards have been sent forth from this mother country and then the peopling of the earth may have proceeded according to the hypothesis before alluded to to form a probable conjecture respecting the country from whence the early civilization of india was derived has been found almost as difficult as to determine the original birthplace of the human race that the dawn of oriental civilization did not arise within the limits of the tropics is the conclusion to which baron william von humboldt has come after much patient research into the diversities of the structure of language and their influence on the mental development of the human race according to him the ancient zend country from whence the spread of knowledge and the arts has been traced in a southeasterly direction lay to the northwest of the upper indus as to the time of the first appearance of man upon the earth if we are to judge from the discordance of opinion amongst celebrated chronologists not even a rude approximation has yet been made towards determining a point of so much interest the problem seems hitherto to have baffled the curiosity of the antiquary if possible more completely than the fixing on a geographical site for the original habitation of the ancestors of the human race the chevalier bunsen in his elaborate and philosophical work on ancient egypt has satisfied not a few of the learned by an appeal to monumental inscriptions still extant that the successive dynasties of kings may be traced back without a break to menes and that the date of his reign would correspond with the year thirty six forty b c he supposes at the same time what is most reasonable that the egyptian people must have existed for a long period probably at least for five centuries and their earlier and less settled state before they reached the point of civilization at which menes consolidated them into a great and united empire this would carry us back to upwards of four thousand years b c or to an epoch coincident with that commonly set down for the creation of the world in accordance with computations founded on the combined ages of the successive antediluvian patriarchs it follows that the same epoch of menes is anterior by a great many centuries to the most ancient of the dates usually fixed upon for the mosaic deluge the fact that no record or tradition of any great and overwhelming flood has been detected in the mythology or monumental annals of the egyptians will suggest many reflections to a geologist 
who has weighed well the evidence we possess of a variety of partial deluges, which have happened in districts not free, like Egypt, for the last three thousand years, from earthquakes, and other causes of great aqueous catastrophes. The tales and legends of calamitous floods preserved in Greece, Asia Minor, the southern shores of the Baltic, China, Peru, and Chile, have, as we have seen, been all of them handed down to us by the inhabitants of regions in which the operation of natural causes in modern times, and the recurrence of a succession of disastrous floods, afford us data for interpreting the meaning of the obscure traditions of an illiterate age. In his learned treatise on ancient chronology, Dr. Hales has selected from a much greater number a list of no less than 120 authors, all of whom give a different period for the epoch of the creation of the world, the extreme range of difference between them amounting to no less than 3,268 years. It appears that even amongst authorities who in England are generally regarded as orthodox, there is a variance, not of years, or of one or two centuries, but upwards of a millennium, according as they have preferred to follow the Hebrew or the Samaritan or the Greek versions of the Mosaic writings. Can we then wonder that they who decipher the monuments of Egypt, or the geologists who interpret the earth's autobiography, should arrive at views respecting the date of an ancient empire or the age of our planet irreconcilable with every one of these numerous and conflicting chronologies. The want of agreement amongst the learned, in regard to the probable date of the deluge of Noah, is a source of far greater perplexity and confusion than our extreme uncertainty as to the epoch of the creation the deluge being a comparatively modern event, from which the repeopling of the earth and the history of the present races of mankind is made to begin. Naturalists have long felt that to render probable the received opinion that all the leading varieties of the human family have originally sprung from a single pair, a doctrine against which there appears to me to be no sound objection, a much greater lapse of time is required for the slow and gradual formation of races, such as the Caucasian, Mongolian, and Negro, that is embraced in any of our popular systems of chronology. The existence of two of those marked varieties above mentioned can be traced back three thousand years before the present time, or to the paintings of pictures, preserved in the tombs, or on the walls of buried temples in Egypt. In these we behold the Negro and Caucasian physiognomies, portrayed as faithfully and in as strong contrast as if the likeness of those races had been taken yesterday. When we consider, therefore, the extreme slowness of the changes, which climate and other modifying causes have produced in modern times, we must allow for a vast series of antecedent ages, in the course of which the long-continued influence of similar external circumstances gave rise to peculiarities, probably increased in many successive generations, 
until they were fixed by hereditary transmission. The characteristic forms and features thus acquired by certain tribes may have been afterwards diffused by migration for a few centers over wide continental spaces. The theory, therefore, that all the races of man have come from one common stock receives support from every investigation which forces us to expand our ideas of the duration of past time, or which multiplies the number of years that have passed away since the origin of man. Hitherto, geology has neither enlarged nor circumscribed the human period, but simply proved that in the history of animated nature it is comparatively modern or the last of a long series of antecedent epochs, in each of which the earth has been successively peopled by distinct species of animals and plants. In an early stage of society, the necessity of hunting acts as a principle of repulsion, causing men to spread with the greatest rapidity over a country until the whole is covered with scattered settlements. It has been calculated that 800 acres of hunting ground produce only as much food as half an acre of arable land. When the game has been in a great measure exhausted and a state of pasturage succeeds, the several hunter tribes, being already scattered, may multiply in a short time into the greatest number which the pastoral state is capable of sustaining. The necessity, says Brand, thus imposed upon the two savage states of dispersing themselves far and wide over the country, affords a reason why, at a very early period, the worst parts of the earth may have become inhabited. But this reason, it may be said, is only applicable in as far as regards the peopling of a continuous continent, whereas the smallest islands, however far remote from continents, have almost always been found inhabited by man. St. Helena, it is true, afforded an exception, for when that island was discovered in 1501 it was only inhabited by sea-fowl, and occasionally by seals and turtles, and was covered with a forest of trees and shrubs, all of species peculiar to it, with one or two exceptions, and which seems to have been expressly created for this remote and insulated spot. The islands also of Mauritius, Bourbon, Pitcairns, and Juan Fernandez, and those of the Galapagos Archipelago, one of which is seventy miles long, were inhabited when first discovered, and what is more remarkable than all the Falkland Islands which together are a hundred and twenty miles in length by sixty in breadth, and abounding in food fit for the support of man. Drifting of canoes to vast distances. But very few of the numerous coral islets and volcanoes of the vast Pacific, capable of sustaining a few families of men, have been found untenanted and we have therefore to inquire whence and by what means if all the members of the great human family have had one common source could those savages have migrated cook foster and others have remarked that parties of savages in their canoes 
must have often lost their way, and must have been driven on distant shores where they were forced to remain, deprived both of the means and of the requisite intelligence for returning to their country. Thus Captain Cook found on the island of Watio three inhabitants of Otahate, who had been drifted thither in a canoe, although the distance between the two isles is five hundred and fifty miles. In 1696, two canoes containing thirty persons who had left Ancorso were thrown by contrary winds and storms on the island of Samar, one of the Philippines, at a distance of eight hundred miles. In 1721, two canoes, one of which contained twenty-four, and the other six persons, men, women, and children, were drifted from an island called Faroalep to the island of Guam, one of the Marianes, a distance of two hundred miles. Kotzebue, when investigating the coral isles of Radak, at the eastern extremity of the Caroline Isles, became acquainted with a person of the name of Kadu, who was a native of Ulia, an isle fifteen hundred miles distant, from which he had been drifted with a party. Kadu and three of his countrymen one day left Ulia in a sailing boat, when a violent storm arose and drove them out of their course. They drifted about the open sea for eight months, according to their reckoning, by the moon making a knot on a cord at every new moon. Being expert fishermen, they subsisted entirely on the produce of the sea, and when the rain fell, laid in as much fresh water as they had vessels to contain it. Kadu, says Kotzebue, who was the best diver, frequently went down to the bottom of the sea where it is well known that the water is not so salt, with a coconut shell, with only a small opening. When these unfortunate men reached the isles of Radak, every hope and almost every feeling had died within them. Their sail had long been destroyed, their canoe had long been the sport of winds and waves, and they were picked up by the inhabitants of Orr in a state of insensibility. But by the hospitable care of these islanders they soon recovered and were restored to perfect health. Captain Beachy, in his voyage to the Pacific, fell in with some natives of the Coral Islands, who had in a similar manner been carried to a great distance from their native country. They had embarked, to the number of a hundred and fifty souls, in three double canoes, from Ana, or Chain Island, situated about three hundred miles to the eastward of Otaheite. They were overtaken by the monsoon which dispersed the canoes, and after driving them about the ocean, left them becalmed, so that a great number of persons perished. Two of the canoes were never heard of, but the other was drifted from one uninhabited island to another, at each of which the voyagers obtained a few provisions, and at length, after having wandered for a distance of six hundred miles, they were found and carried to their home in the Blossom. Mr. Crawford informs me that there are several well-authenticated accounts of canoes having been drifted from Sumatra to Madagascar, and by such causes a portion of the Malayan language, with some useful plants, have been transferred to that island 
which is principally peopled by negroes the space traversed in some of these instances was so great that similar accidents might suffice to transport canoes from various parts of africa to the shores of south america or from spain to the azores and thence to north america so that man even in a rude state of society is liable to be scattered involuntarily by the winds and waves over the globe in a manner singularly analogous to that in which many plants and animals are diffused we ought not then to wonder that during the ages required for some tribes of the human race to attain that advanced stage of civilization which empowers the navigator to cross the ocean in all directions with security the whole earth should have become the abode of rude tribes of hunters and fishers were the whole of mankind now cut off with the exception of one family inhabiting the old or new continent or australia or even some coral islet of the pacific we might expect their descendants though they should never become more enlightened than the south sea islanders or the esquimaux to spread in the course of ages over the whole earth diffused partly by the tendency of population to increase in a limited district beyond the means of subsistence and partly by the accidental drifting of canoes by tides and currents to distant shores involuntary influence of man in diffusing animals and plants many of the general remarks which have been made respecting the influence of man in spreading or in checking the diffusion of plants apply equally to his relations with the animal kingdom on a future occasion i shall be led to speak of the instrumentality of our species in naturalizing useful animals and plants in new regions when explaining my views of the effects which the spreading and increase of certain species exert in the extirpation of others at present i shall confine myself to a few remarks on the involuntary aid which man lends to the dissemination of the species in the mammiferous class our influence is chiefly displayed in increasing the number of quadrupeds which are serviceable to us and in exterminating or reducing number of those which are noxious sometimes however we unintentionally promote the multiplication of inimical species as when we introduced the rat which was not indigenous in the new world into all parts of america they have been conveyed over in ships and now infest a great multitude of islands and parts of that continent in like manner the norway rat mustecumanus has been imported into england where it plunders our property in ships and houses among birds the house sparrow may be cited as a species known to have extended its range with the tillage of the soil during the last century it has spread gradually over asiatic russia towards the north and east always following the progress of cultivation it made its first appearance on the irtych in tobolsk soon after the russians had ploughed the land it came in seventeen thirty five up the obi to Beresau, 
and four years after to Naryn, about fifteen degrees of longitude farther east. In 1710 it had been seen in the higher parts of the coast of Lina, in the government of Irkutsk. In all these places it is now common, but is not yet found in the uncultivated regions of Kamchatka. The great viper, Fer de Lance, a species no less venomous than the rattlesnake, which now ravages Martinique and St. Lucia, was accidentally introduced by man and exists in no other part of the West Indies. Many parasitic insects which attack our persons, and some of which are supposed to be peculiar to our species, have been carried into all parts of the earth and have as high a claim as man to a universal geographical distribution. A great variety of insects have been transported in ships from one country to another, especially in warmer latitudes. The European housefly has been introduced in this way into all the South Sea Islands. Notwithstanding the coldness of our climate in England, we have been unable to prevent the cockroach, Lata orientalis, from entering and diffusing itself in our ovens and kneading troughs, and availing itself of the artificial warmth which we afford. It is well known also that beetles and many other kinds of lignopertus insects have been introduced into Great Britain in timber, especially several North American species. The commercial relations, says Malta Brun, between France and India, have transported from the latter country the aphis, which destroys the apple tree, and two sorts of neuroptera, lucifuga, and flavicola, mostly confined to province and the neighborhood of Bordeaux, where they devour the timber in the houses and naval arsenals. Among mollusks we mention the Torido nivalis, which is a native of equatorial seas, but which, by adhering to the bottom of ships, was transported to Holland, where it has been most destructive to vessels and piles. The same species has also been naturalized in England and other countries enjoying an extensive commerce. Bulimus undatus, a land species of considerable size, native of Jamaica and other West Indian islands, has been imported, adhering to tropical timber, into Liverpool, and, as I learned from Mr. Broderip, is now naturalized in the woods near that town. In all these and innumerable other instances we may regard the involuntary agency of man as strictly analogous to that of the inferior animals. Like them, we unconsciously contribute to extend or limit the geographical range and numbers of certain species in obedience to general rules in the economy of nature, which are for the most part beyond our control. End of section 89.